Welcome to the podcast of the Las Vegas Rotary Club. My name is Jim Cole, and I'm proud to be the 96th president of Las Vegas Rotary. Las Vegas Rotary's main focus is on youth, specifically youth literacy and life skill development. If you're in town, we invite you to join us at the Lowry's Prime Rib at noon on Thursdays. You can also find more information about our meetings on lasvegasrotary.com. If you're unable to join us, we live stream our meetings on Facebook at noon Pacific Time Thursdays. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Okay, we're blessed. We have two speakers who have come today to us on short notice, and I, I thank them again for uh, taking the time to uh, put together a, a great presentation on a, a really interesting topic. Um, they're both longtime members of the club, so I don't think they need uh, a lengthy introduction. I believe Mike is the first speaker, but uh, both Mike, uh, no, Roddy's going to speak first. Roddy Tucker, then, please. Welcome. Show of hands, who's got a phone on them? Hands up if you've got a phone on you. Put it away. Thank you. I know, you're going to take a picture. I've heard that line before. Well, a little clarification, the picture of me here, very clearly. High school graduation picture from 2006. Just wanted to clarify that. That was your 16th year, right? Yeah, yeah. 16th year at that high school. Took me a while to get out of there. So Mike and I are going to kind of tag team today. We're going to speak about a subject that nobody knows anything about. So whatever we say sounds really informative, and that's simply because it's a facet of the new tax law that was just recently passed. Now, a lot of people that elect our congressional representatives to office anticipate, thank you, that there's going to be some good come out of their election. And a lot of these guys go to office and they have good intents and they pass a lot of laws and they're always trying to help their constituents and occasionally some laws get passed that actually have some real positive, tangible benefits to people that otherwise wouldn't be exposed to it. And we think at this point, since it has no history and it just started, that it's very possible that this facet of the Tax Act could substantially change a lot of lives in this country. So <clears throat> I'm going to briefly outline the parameters of this part of the Tax Act, and it's called the Qualified Opportunity Zone Fund. Now, to speak to that, how many here, by a show of hands, that put your devices away already, know what a 1031 exchange is? Okay, for the balance of you, I'll give you a 30-second sketch. You buy something that you've invested in, and you sell it a year and a day after you bought it, and you have some appreciation of some sort that occurs. So you, consequently, you have a capital gain, as recognized by the IRS, and you need to pay some taxes on that. But should you decide that you don't want to do that right now and you'd like to defer that opportunity to pay your taxes... You can take the proceeds from that sale and through a very clean process say, I'm going to take this and instead of taking it home and paying you the taxes, I'm going to go put it back into something else again. And you can perpetually do this forever. And at some point in time, you sell it and then at that point, you have to go ahead and pay the taxes. Well, this Opportunity Zone Fund has a lot of similarities to the 1031 tax exchange. So <clears throat> when I sell an asset in a 1031, I have to take all the proceeds and move them into a like property or asset. So stocks to stocks, 
real estate to real estate, you get the picture. Where this differs is I sell an asset and I only take the appreciation that I incurred during that holding period instead of all the proceeds. So the portion I originally put in is called the basis. The appreciation is called a gain. In the Opportunity Zone Fund, you're going to take the gain and you're going to go put it into something else. Now, you've got a lot of latitude that we've never had in 1031 exchanges. It doesn't have to be like for like. I can come out of an Apple stock and invest in a warehouse, as an example. The money that was the basis of my sale, I have to set it aside for a moment because I'm going to need it later, and we'll go over that real quickly. But I've taken that lift, that appreciation. I've invested it in a new property. The defining factor is these zones. And how they were established is the code says you have to go and find certain census tracts that meet certain economic criteria in every state. So they very quickly had to form these committees in every state. The committees had to pick a whole bunch of census tracts throughout, in this case, Nevada, and then give them to the governor, who's the chief executive of our state. He had an opportunity then to choose which ones he wanted, and he was limited based upon our demographics. So California has over 800 census tracts that they could have called opportunity zones. Nevada has 60, to give you an example. So the governor gets this long list, and then he starts getting influenced by people calling him saying, <clears throat> yeah, there's some over there. And so you see when you look at the maps that we're going to show you, there's some obvious places where you're like, well, how did that qualify? Like everything to the north side of I-15 out by Nellis is an opportunity zone, which is called Apex. Well, of course it qualified. Nobody out there lives there, so it doesn't have any income, so it must be blighted. And we're going to go through these maps in, in about Yeah, we'll pop minutes. you through them. Yeah. So to wrap up the four corners of this, you put money into an opportunity zone, and then you have an opportunity to let it sit there and grow, and it can be a business that you invested in. It could be real property. It could be a combination of both. It can be cross-pollinated with new market tax credits and other similar things, so you can start layering those. We're going to show you the ones that are here in Southern Nevada so you can kind of appreciate it. The summary is that if you hold this new asset for 10 years and a day and sell it, the government will allow you to adjust your basis to fair market value and you experience no capital gains on the lift that you incurred over that 10-year period. Now, the only caveat is that that original money you put in, you got to pay the capital gains on that in 2026 regardless of how long you've held it. So you got a tax bill coming due, and that's where that money that I told you not to spend and set on a shelf, that's where you're going to write that check from. Now we've given you all this hodgely-podgely economics, but where I think this is really interesting is you're going to be incentivized to build new things, new businesses, in areas that really aren't that blighted. If you'll see the areas we're going to show you, they may have qualified, but the fact is they're not really economically depressed. Some of them might be gentrifying, but they're actually great neighborhoods. Big area surrounding the stadium, surprise. Another's up Rainbow, Jones, Sahara area, nothing wrong with that. So Mike's going to share a few of these things with you, and we'll move on from there. One of the things as you think about this is this legislation has been talked about as one of the greatest economic development programs that the federal government has ever established. 
And so you're seeing articles on this in Forbes, in the Wall Street Journal, in various other publications, in all kinds of tax publications and that type of thing, in Bloomberg. It's really going to change neighborhoods. And they do it. There's three key points that we're going to talk about over the next 20 minutes. One are the zones, one are the funds, because the investments have to go through funds. You can have a single-purpose fund for a development, and then uh, the investments that are made in there. So why did they do this instead of just modify the 1031 language? And the biggest reason, as many of you know, I've been involved in angel investing and some venture capital for years. And what, what I learned was 37% of venture capital occurs in Silicon Valley. You know, four states get 80% of all the venture capital money. The states that have been doing well or the counties that have been doing well are doing great. But there's plenty of counties that are doing worse and worse. So right now, one in six Americans live in economically distressed communities. And the, and the dark, I'm colorblind. I presume this is red, but I'm not sure. Okay. So the red areas are the most distressed areas, and the lighter colors are the less distressed until you get to the blue or purple. Thank you. So, but look at this graph. From the year 2000 to 2015, employment has improved in the prosperous counties 24%, but in the worst counties, unemployment has grown at a greater pace, right? Business establishments have gone up by 13%, in the prosperous zip codes, and they've gone down by 6% in the non-prosperous zip codes or the distressed zip codes. So a certain group of people were trying to create legislation. How do we change the economics in the poor neighborhoods? How do we bring capital to those poor neighborhoods? And that's what this program is all about. And so we're a capital-rich country. We just haven't been deploying it equally. And so this is trying to give a significant incentive to make investments in these lower-income areas. And it does it by giving kind of the juicy tax incentives that we'll talk a little more on, but the Rod discussed. The zones were nominated by the governors, as he said. They were approved by the U.S. Treasury. They were in place until, or they will be in place for the next 10 years, and you can't change it anymore. The politicking went on. Nevada was one of four states that didn't turn in their zones on time. We had a 30-day extension, and we were still one of four states that didn't turn their zones in on time. And then somebody politicked pretty well, and some land and sparks got in the new zones. And uh, so now it's in. So they can't change without an act of Congress. So it's not an easy thing to change. So, so one of the things you can notice is that this act causes you to have to physically improve a new location. It makes no sense based on the, the way that's written, to go out and purchase an existing building because your initial investment has to be at least that again. So if you buy a $40 million apartment project, you're not going to spend another $40 million improving it. But if you could build a $40 million apartment project in an area that was on the edge or maybe in a gentrifying area that wouldn't otherwise be that attractive, but the money that you're getting is looking at these tax incentives, they spend 3 or $4 million on the land, another $35 million on the buildings, they've qualified. This is new product, new assets, and new businesses. It's really different than anything we've seen before. So here's the areas in Vegas. Here are the areas in Las Vegas that qualify in downtown area. So you can see. So if you can't really tell from afar, 
the stadium's about right here. Duh. Actually, no, that's Sahara. Wait, I'd... no, no, right here. No, right? no, no. Isn't that Las Vegas? Fashion show mall. Oh, you're right. It's down here off the down map, here. which she'll show slide. you on another map. Here, well, here. That. Oh, there's the stadium. There you right go. There. So they kind of swept up. There's McCarran to give you a point of reference. Not that you can build on the runway, but it, it sounds nice. Right. But one thing, like, you know, I had a talk with Tom Thomas. His land, McCarran Center, was included, right? But the whole park is developed. According to what Rodney said, you have to improve the land by at least what you purchased it with. So if he sells the park, and I'm just going to pick a round number for $100 million, whoever buys it has to put another $100 million into the park. That's not feasible for that park. The and there's no more land left, so it's kind of... It, I mean, there's little tiny patches, but you look at this and you have to scratch your head and go, why did that make it in when there's no opportunity to physically improve it? Right. Well, you can see up above on this particular map by UNLV, you know, three-quarters around UNLV qualifies as an opportunity zone. So you want to make a long-term investment in that neighborhood, it will pay off from a tax point of view. Here's Henderson. Very little of Henderson qualifies, just the downtown core. Here's North Las Vegas. The thing that was most disappointing to me was the Moulin Rouge is right here outside of this opportunity zone. And the city, I, I, I spoke with the governor's office. I was furious. And they said the city nominated 10th on their list. And the city said, we didn't prioritize the list. We just gave you a list. You asked for a list of 10 property, 10 areas. And it happened to be the 10th one on the list. And it never came out in the public hearings that we had. And I was out of town when they had the public hearings. So that was a shame. But like the downtown North Las Vegas core qualifies around the airport, qualifies those types of things. Okay. Rod and I both think this one's pretty interesting. The speedway is halfway in and halfway out of the opportunity zone there yeah. off of I-15. But imagine, you know, part of the tax benefit is holding the land for 10 years. If a group wanted to buy north of the Speedway and build another industrial park, that is a perfect opportunity zone project. Likewise, you might wonder, how is it that Nellis is in when you're saying, well, that belongs to the federal government. How could you possibly invest in that? The Treasury hasn't promulgated all the rules. So we're up here winging round numbers. and some, There's a million questions left, and they haven't finished up. But it does say thus far that you could do a long-term ground lease. So if the federal government, say the Department of Defense, was willing to lease you a piece of ground so that you could build a facility for a private contractor that was going to, say, maybe service some of the fleet, that would qualify. Build a child care within the airport or within the base. Build housing within the base. Th those types of things would qualify. Here's Pahrump. About a third of the city and a lot of the rural area around it qualifies. Cedar City, a lot of us go there. We talked about the Shakespeare Festival. You know, around college cities, college towns qualify. So if you had the incentive to do incubators or student housing or that type of thing, that type of uh, would qualify. So let's go more specifically into what are these incentives. And Rodney talked about them. And Rodney, I'll let you start. And kind of All right. Through so this again. the first thing is you're going to put this, new, this, this money that you acquired from the sale of an asset be it stock, exotic automobiles, or an apartment complex. And you can go put it into a new business. As an example, you could go into one of these opportunity zones, build a building for a tenant, 
buy all their CNC machinery, if that's what they did, as the furniture and fixtures as part of your capital improvements, you could then depreciate all those assets in one year under the current tax code, take the building, lease it to them for 10 years and a day with a sell lease back, and that qualifies. Now you've, you've got a piece of the business and the fixturization and the physical real estate as well. And that kind of homogenization has never occurred before. That's one example. During that period you're holding it, there's two little kickers they give you. It's a little complicated, so I'm going to try and really simplify it. The money you put in, you owe capital gains on. In 2026, you've got to write a check. If you hold it for five years before you sell it, they take your basis and they lift it to 110% of what you put in there. So they give you a little 10% kicker. Seven and a half years or seven years, they give you another five. So in essence, if you had a million dollars you put in and you were in the 23% capital gains and you owed you know, $200,000, $230,000 when you started, at the end of the seven years, you'd now only have a $200,000 obligation. I'm rounding, so bear with me. And that kind of takes care of that initial investment. The balance of it, hold it for the full 10 years in a day, and you're going to experience no capital gains tax when you dissolve it. So if you sold it in 10 years in a day for, say, $5 million, you got $4 million that you, know you have no tax obligation on, which, again, if it's in the 20% plus range, you save the better part of a million dollars from going into somebody else's hands who believe that they're well qualified to spend your money better than you are. And I think another one of the benefits that's great is, again, you know, Bob and I have talked shop and investments for 20, 30 years. Suppose he had an investment that he had done four 1031s in, which I think you may have one, and your basis is pretty low, but it's still, let's say you sell an asset for $10 million, but your basis is $2 million. You can pull the basis out tax-free and get to play with that, and then all you have to do is invent, invest the game. So some of the consequences that we see as a result of this is there's going to be a plethora of asset holders who were never otherwise incentivized to sell an asset, suddenly looking at their assets going, I'm going to get out of this and go somewhere else, which quite frankly is going to mean there's going to be a softening on the prices. And since I'm a real estate-oriented guy, I'm going to speak to that. I think you're going to have a lot of people that own industrial parks, office buildings, and apartments who are going to want to move their product out and they're suddenly going to find that they're competing with all these other people that want to get out at the same time. And it's going to become a buyer's market. Prices are going to go soft during this period. One of the challenges that's faced is when you have a sale, you only have 180 days to get your money into a fund. So even if you self-declare, that's not a problem. But if, say, Matthew was raising a fund for $200 million and I wanted to get over there, I'd have to, as soon as I close my sale, I'd have 180 days to give him the money. That's really not that difficult. But once he has it, based on the current not fully ratified promulgated rules, he's got between 180 days and a year to redeploy the initial investment, and then he's got 30 months after that to take and substantially improve whatever assets they bought. So you're going to see a softening of sales prices when everybody's trying to get out of stuff so they can get into this. You're secondly going to see people making bad decisions because of the urgency that's been put on them based this 180 days and another 180. It's going to get, there's going to be some mistakes made. And lastly, who's going to buy this stuff? If all the sophisticated investors hold assets, I'm not going to sell one so I can go buy another. This begs the question where the new money is going to come from. And right now in the United States, the only real new money that's got billions of dollars is the cannabis industry. 
and this may be their savior that they're going to find a buyer from because those guys are sitting on ordinary income, no other opportunities. I think they're going to be your buyers. Yeah. Some other unique things about this type of investment is it's any long-term gain can go into this. So it, it doesn't just have to be real estate. So let's say you're an investor in a tech company that grew wildly or Apple stock or some other company whose stock has done great. You can sell publicly traded stock and invest and defer the gain on it in an opportunity zone investment. It can be an art sale. It can be private stock. Let's say you have a business and you choose to sell. Now would be a good time to sell, deploy that capital into this new fund, you know, or new type of fund, or create your own fund, or that type of thing. Okay, it can be even the gain on a depreciated asset. So let's say you've had this huge piece of equipment in your facility for years and it's time to buy a new one, but you can sell it and sell it for 500000 The gain can be put in an opportunity fund and defer the tax on that. So it's not just real estate, okay? And Sharon, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, maybe. So, and the other great thing is it doesn't have to be a direct investment. No accommodator, nobody has to get in the middle. So you can have sold something on June 30 and it's still in the bank, and you can reinvest it, or maybe you spent it, but then you got money some other place. You have 180 days to put it into an opportunity zone fund. And you could self-declare. So it could be you by yourself and say, I'm a, I've, I've created a fund, and I'm the sole partner in the fund. And that's perfectly fine. And all you're doing at your tax return that year is giving notice with this form that has yet to be finished that says, I'm one of those. Okay. In addition, real quickly, you've got – a number of money managers around the country that are out running around raising money for this Opportunity Zone Fund. And these are sophisticated groups of money managers. But many are and many aren't. <laughs> and, well, there's, this is the other part. You've, there's lots of people raising money with this as their flag. And I've talked to, I don't know how many, I just start cold calling these funds I could find, claiming they had Opportunity Zone Funds. And with very few exceptions, and the exceptions were kind of family offices that were taking their own assets, selling, creating a fund, and meaning they're cradle to grave. They're internally able to create all the deal flow. These other funds, they don't have any deal flow. They're sitting on this money. They've got 180 days to start spending it, and they have no deal flow. And the developers I talked to that are even sophisticated developers are like, uh, I didn't know about this. And it's not like you can just take an apartment project you have and say, I know I can make it work over here and suddenly move it over here and get it to work. So there's a deal flow problem. There's a lot of money that's going to make some bad decisions chasing bad deals trying to get their money deployed. Okay. So I think we talked about this. The issue is if you have some land in an opportunity zone and you've had it since before the start of this year, it wouldn't qualify. You would have to sell it to a new entity and you'd have to only own less than 20% of the new, it can't be a related party transaction. So you'd have to own less than 20% of the development entity. And so an so, example of that would be if you had a piece of property over by the stadium and Mike owned it and had owned it for several years and I wanted to build some apartments on it, I could go to Mike, agree to purchase the land from him, and we'll suppose for this purposes that the sale proceeds from the land is going to be less than 20% of the finished product. He could take that proceeds, come back into the fund, and see his money deployed back in the fund that way, even though he owned it prior to December 31st of 2017. Right. Okay. 
So that's one criteria. The land has to be purchased after December 31st. Number two, it has to go through a fund. Well, you could create your own fund, and it's very simple, and there are some guidelines for it. Work with your accountant, and they'll help you make sure it qualifies. It has to be original use, so you have to build something new, right? So new shopping center, new apartments. It could be a new dental office. It's, it wouldn't be unusual for a dentist to potentially invest his own money through his own opportunity fund to build a new location or a medical group next to each of the hospitals that are in the opportunity zones, and there's several, and then he could sell those 10 years later tax-free. No but capital gains on the building. Likewise, you could be a, a solar roof company, and you could build your little distribution and made headquarters within one of these zones, but all your sales could be outside of that. So it's, it's not that you have to restrict your physical business activity to the confines of that opportunity zone. Rodney, I think it has to be 60% of the installation where the people work have to be in the opportunity zones. 60% of the employees have to work the majority of their time in the opportunity zones to qualify. Okay, so fund certification process, we've kind of talked about this already. One of the interesting things, because of the tax benefits of the deferral, the discounting, and then the, there's no tax on the new development, it could add 3% to your annual return. Okay? It can add three, this is our last slide too, or our second to last slide, Jim, just so you know. So there's people building apartments in LA with the goal of getting a four cap or a six cap, right? What, especially in the multifamily space today, apartments are being sold at very high multiples off of the cash flow. And so if they're expecting a 6% return, Adding 3% to the tax benefit is increasing the turn by 50%. So imagine, so the types of investments, look, if you're taking money that you've earned, you don't want to lose it, right? So you want to invest in a fund that's going to invest with A credit tenants or with reliable developers that have a track record for consistent returns. You don't want to just invest in some guy's first apartment complex that he's ever built, right? Because you could lose it all. You don't want that to happen. What you're just trying to do is juice the return with the tax benefit. And that's what this law does. And it's crazy how much capital is coming off the sideline. There's an estimated $6 trillion in gains from two, $2 trillion from 1031s that have been deferred over the last 40 years and $4 trillion in gains off publicly traded stocks that could potentially come into funds like this. And I've talked with different groups that have a $500 million fund or a $100 million fund or a $20 million fund that they're looking to place in developments, looking to place in businesses in these areas. So there's a lot of money chasing now, looking for good quality deals. So that's one thing to be aware of. Um, so we're here to answer questions now. We've got about eight minutes to 10 minutes for Q&A. We just wanted to get, you, get your appetite aware. But the one thing I can tell you is, I know there's real money out there looking to invest in projects in Vegas, in Phoenix, in Salt Lake City, and it's going to change these neighborhoods because you can't just buy a dilapidated apartment complex behind, let's say, Valley View and Sahara for 40000 a door and put 10000 into it. Yeah, if you buy it for 40000 a door, you've got to improve it by 40000 a door. You're going to see a lot of these communities have great 
great metamorphosis. It's really going to change because money is coming into these neighborhoods. Arguably, some of these older, older by our standards, projects he's talking about, they may, it may make sense for him to scrape it and start over, which could be something that you would never see happen under any other auspices than this kind of curious thing that's been passed that allows us to actually be incentivized to build new stuff in new areas or in old areas that needed new stuff. There are going to be some real curious outcomes over the next 10 years as this money gets redeployed. Yeah. Any questions? Randy, or go ahead. So I think there, I've seen a lot of low-income projects do extremely well in Las Vegas, and I've seen some that haven't. Part of it is you've got to build the right project at the right time. You know, they just built uh, an apartment complex on Valley View and Spring Mountain called Lotus. Have you, I drive by it all the time. Many people see it. That project was built by a quality developer who develops all the time, and they're doing quite well. Right? Who would have thought an, a Class A property in that neighborhood in Chinatown would have done as, as well it's doing? And it's doing great. And if they would have waited a year and done it through an Opportunity Zone fund, all the gain would have been tax-free. So a development like that typically costs, let's say, $30 million to build. When it's stabilized, it's probably worth 35 or $36 million. And then it appreciates 6 to 7% a year for the next 7 or 8 years. Okay, so a $30 million construction cost could be worth $45 million when it's done. And that $15 million in gain is tax-free if it's done in an opportunity zone. Well, actually, right here. I don't know the answer to that question. He wanted to know if the depreciation on the assets is recaptured as well during that 10-year period. We don't know. It's, there's so many rules that Treasury hasn't yet promulgated that there's more questions than answers. I don't and believe there's a change in how depreciation is treated on that. Right here. Next. Go ahead. If you're not a millionaire, can you uh, put your funds into a mutually pooled fund? and benefit from that? Most of the Opportunity Zone funds that are being raised by money managers are just that. It's a, it, it's a consortium of smaller interests. Yeah. So you sold a little Apple stock for $100,000, you threw it in with 50 other people at the same amount, and suddenly you own an apartment project. Right, so I'm seeing, I've got a PPM in my briefcase right there where it's a 50000 minimum to do it. And there's some that are probably even less. But, you know, it's going to be a $200 million fund. They've got some commitments for 5 and $10 million, but their minimum is 50. So there's different folks doing different things. Right here? Um, when when uh, people realize that their investments have really grown, and so do the people that charge us with taxes, what's to stop them from 
changing the tax laws. Two examples. Uh, when Obama became president, the first thing he did was increase the tax rate on anybody that takes money out of their IRA. Also, Obamacare, if you like your doctor, you can keep it. I mean, what's to stop this, things like this? So what I understand, number one, after we're seeing kind of the money that's being considered for these funds, we do believe it's going to change in two years. We believe that the funds that have started under this set of rules will qualify through the end of the fund in 2028. But the funds that are, you know, we believe in two years it's probably going to change because it's going to be more lucrative than people thought. So just to clarify, you've got till 2026 to jump into one of these, and then 10 years and a day after that, you're done. So the whole thing sunsets. Whether or not it'll get amended? It is not, from what I can tell. Was Indian Springs in one of the zones? I do not believe it is. I know a developer who's trying to do something there, and it keeps frustrating me. It's right outside the new market tax credits, right outside the opportunity zone areas. Any other questions? Anybody need to be awakened? Thank you so much for putting up with the improvisation. Thank you both very much for uh, presenting this uh, super fascinating to me topic. As you know from being members of the club, uh, we give uh, uh, the Share What You Can Award uh, to one to each of you, and this is a we will share a, a meal with a needy veteran uh, in your name. Thank, Thank you, you so much for coming today. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you. As we leave here today, let us go forth into the world in peace. Be of good courage. Hold fast to that which is good. Render to no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the afflicted. Honor all persons. Love and serve each other, rejoicing in the fellowship of Rotary. Be people of action. Be the inspiration. Meeting adjourned. We hope you enjoyed this podcast of our latest meeting. If you'd like to know more about our projects or are interested in membership in the club, please visit us at lasvegasrotary.com. Now go forth and be the inspiration.